Hebrews chapter 1. I am going to begin in Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 2 verse 13, which reads, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. What would you say if you were resting in the shepherd's fields of Bethlehem on that night? How would you react and how would you describe the event? See, we sing angels we have heard on high. But that's not what the shepherds said. They said, again in verse 15, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. The Lord has made this known. And as we open up now the letter to the Hebrews, this epic sermon begins with that truth. That God is the one who does the talking. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God. After He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. We are into Hebrews. What does Rick do on a cold Sunday morning in December? He brews. He brews. Thank you. <laughs> Hebrews is a masterful, epic sermon. Now get that, because now we're shifting gears. We've been in the letters of Paul for a long time. And Paul's letters are, are personal and they're passionate and they're charged and they're also at times random. Not random as far as the Spirit is concerned, but you're reading along and then Paul goes on a rabbit trail. He has a side note. This is a sermon. Not a letter in the traditional sense at all. It's an essay, if you will, or a dissertation. It's a sermon. It's written in the highest form of Greek rhetoric and oral persuasion in the New Testament. That's remarkable to me. Only Luke and Acts even compare with the height of the language and the precision of linguistic expertise that we see when we read Hebrews. Now you and I, we're just reading it in English, so we may not sense the difference, but if you were reading in the Greek, you would see that we have just launched from what is oftentimes the more common Koinonia Greek. Now we've launched into this, this high Greek. And it's very impressive in that language. But the writer also has an exhaustive knowledge and appreciation of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a marvelous balance. High Greek, but very, very Hebrew in presentation. And as I said, it is unlike any of the letters of Paul. This is highly organized, well-crafted 
teaching, it has a beginning, it develops and maintains a theme without failure, with a unified flow from the beginning all the way to the end, just building on each thought. It's meticulously written, ingeniously uh, spoken, and it is penned for a particular audience. By 200 AD, it bore the title, To the Hebrews. So quite early on, it was understood as a letter to the Hebrews. What does that mean exactly? Well, the elegance of the high Greek and the greetings of those from Italy, chapter 13, verse 24, indicates an audience outside of Judea. We're talking about an audience in the Greco-Roman world. And the mention of the release of our brother Timothy, which you'll see in chapter 13 also. Timothy apparently had been imprisoned and has been released prior to this being written. And so that that ties people reading this or receiving this, it ties them to Timothy and Paul. So already I'm intrigued because it's a letter to the Hebrews, but these are people who have a great understanding or who are connected to Pauline theology. They're not in Judea or, or Samaria. And yet, as you read through the letter, it is assumed that they are familiar with terminology like the fathers, the prophets, angels, the law, Shabbat, the high priest, Melchizedek, the sacrificial system, the blood of bulls and rams, purification, sanctification, Mount Zion, all of these things, these folks receiving the letter to the Hebrews are well versed in them or (laughs) should be. As the writer will point out, by now you all ought to be teachers of these things, he will say. And so, there's an assumption made by the writer of the letter. This is either written to Jewish believers in Jesus, or to Gentile believers who knew and respected the deep Jewish roots of their faith. I suspect it's both. Uh, Gareth Cockerell in his commentary made this comment. He said, according to Hebrews... The people of God are and always have been the people who hear the word of God and respond with faith and obedience. The true sons and daughters of Abraham will be those who hear and respond in faith. He says there's nothing in this sermon that would demean or marginalize Jews as a people. That's important. In fact, you can find that in the whole entire New Testament. There's nothing that demeans or marginalizes the Jewish people. Nothing that replaces them by the church today. But there is a certain fear here as well. These people who understand, appreciate, have knowledge of Jewish things, these people who who would be uh, impressed by or, or understanding of the high Greek language are also a people that apparently have been through some tough times and are starting to get weary. Because throughout the letter we get encouragement after encouragement after encouragement against shrinking back. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. We are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. You get this constant encouragement from the writer saying let's go forward. It's time to move on. In our knowledge, in our understanding, in our passion. In our faith, don't sit back. And it doesn't matter where we are, at what point in life we are. Our Father, our God, calls us to go forward. 
To be people who move on, not people who slide back into a oh, lethargic state. So this theme is throughout the teaching faith and obedience in and to and through Jesus. All that the old order of the law and the prophets had looked forward to is fulfilled in Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Christ. Jesus who said, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill, Matthew 5.17. Jesus who said in Revelation 22.13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And Hebrews 13.8 tells us, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's the key verse of the entire letter. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're going to repeat that a lot in the next few weeks. The key verse, the key person, is Jesus Now, let me give you a little background, since we're opening this up for the first time, a a brief background of understanding to this letter, when it was written, why it was written, and by whom it was written. Hebrews quickly found its place in the canon of accepted, inspired scripture. In fact, it was quoted as early as the 90s A.D. So first century, it was already being quoted. It was quoted by Clement of Rome, who we believe is the same Clement, mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. He actually quotes from this letter. It was referred to and or quoted by uh, a guy named Polycarp at the end of the first and into the second century. Irenaeus, who I've mentioned many times in 180 AD. Tertullian in 200. Among others, these all referred to, quoted from, or mentioned the letter to the Hebrews. Tertullian even named the writer. Which is interesting to me because at 200, and this letter being written in the first century, so 120 to 130 years perhaps after it was written and received and began to circulate, Tertullian told us who wrote it. Now you could say, well, but how did he know? Well, how do we know of the writings of George Washington here 200 plus years later? No one questions that. I'll leave that with you just for a moment, come back to who that writer perhaps may be. Some say that it was Paul. And I've wondered that for years because the theology is Pauline. It fits the rest of the Pauline letters. And that's why it's placed where it is right after the letters of Paul. There are those who still to this day say, Paul must have written it. And yet the critics of these things and and the scholars look at the language. Very different than the language that Paul uses. Very different style of Greek and construction of things, and flow of things. Like I said earlier, Paul in his letters tends to talk for a while, and then he'll rabbit trail somewhere else, and rabbit trail... I mean, you get the the real personal sense as Paul is pouring out what the Spirit is pouring into him. But this letter, like I said, is sermonic. From beginning to end, it is crafted, it flows, it's just different in its presentation. I'm not saying Paul didn't write it. I'm just saying it is uniquely different from the rest of his letters. So there are those who say, well then, Paul wrote it, and I like this theory, it's an interesting one. Paul wrote it in Hebrew, and Luke came along and translated it into the Greek. And that's possible as well. I mean, remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So perhaps Paul didn't want to mess with that. 
Didn't want to undermine the opportunity to be out with the Gentiles, so he wrote this in Hebrews and doesn't name himself. Leaves that out entirely so this letter of teaching can circulate on its own merit. Well, that's possible. Paul writing it in Hebrews, Luke coming along, Luke being scholarly himself, he's a doctor, writing it in the higher form of Greek. But the one reason, I think, more than any other that speaks against Paul writing it is actually internal. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, if you just look ahead... He writes, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Do you catch that? It was confirmed to us, the writer says, to us by others who heard from him. In other words, the writer received this secondhand, not firsthand. Oh, firsthand in terms of being inspired by the Spirit of God to write. But having heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the writer said he was secondhand. He didn't hear it directly from Jesus. He heard it from those who heard it from Jesus. Well, that's different than Paul. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ firsthand. Paul received it firsthand. The writers of Hebrews received it secondhand. He did not hear it directly from or in an experience with Jesus. In fact, this author is unique in the New Testament because he received it from those who received it from Jesus. Doesn't mean it's not inspired. It simply means the writer himself never claims firsthand apostolic authority. Paul always does. In every letter, Paul refers to himself as an apostle and the authority that comes with it. That's not even mentioned here. The writer does not claim that himself. What this writer does is he bases his appeal for this letter as an inspired letter from God. He bases it on two things. Number one, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews is grounded in, it's firmly embedded in the gospel. And you hear the gospel throughout. And secondly, and more profoundly, it is grounded in the Hebrew scriptures. The letter shows a great knowledge of the Older Testament. There are 82 quotes and allusions to the Older Testament in Hebrews. 82 in 13 chapters. So this is full of the Bible. Talking with Les earlier this morning, and we were just relating the fact that what's marvelous about the Word of God it is, is that it's all the Word of God. Genesis to Revelation. It didn't begin for us with Matthew. It began for us in Genesis. Just as it did for the Jewish people. Just as it does for all people of faith. And so when I read from Micah chapter 5 about the birth of Jesus, it is as significant to me as reading about the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. It's all God's Word, and it is all brought that people might find faith and obedience in God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this letter is fully supported by and supportive of all the rest of Scripture. It does not contradict. It flows beautifully with the entirety of the Bible. So some think, not Paul, possibly Paul translated by Luke. Others think Luke himself just wrote it. 
Again, he was a doctor, and the good doctor would have been a scholar, intimately familiar with Paul's teaching and his theology. And it's pointed out by by those who study these things that 67% of the wordage that's used in Hebrews you can find in Luke and Acts as well. I don't know who has time to figure that stuff out. 67%, you might say, wow, that's a lot. Well, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fair amount. It's, it's a good amount. But it's not necessarily compelling. It doesn't necessarily mean that Luke wrote it. There are others who say, no, no, it was Apollos. Apollos wrote this. Why would they think that? Acts chapter 18, verse 24 tells us a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. Acts 18.28, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Well, that describes Hebrews. This book demonstrates by the Hebrew Scriptures, by the Older Testament, that Jesus is the Christ. That's kind of the point of the whole letter. And so people say, well, Apollos, maybe he wrote this. The only problem with that is that the early church fathers never associate Apollos with this letter. Though they associate different people, they never claim that Apollos was the writer. The first person to do that was in the 16th century, Martin Luther. Luther just didn't like any of the other options, so he said, Apollos, Apollos, he's our guy. Well, there's another possibility that I find at this point most compelling, and that is Barnabas. 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 Acts chapter 4 verse 36 tells us now Joseph, which is Barnabas, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles. Now that tells us a couple of things. It tells us, number one, he was a Levite. Barnabas had priestly understanding and knowledge. Barnabas would have been trained in that mentality and with that understanding. He was a native of Cyprus, a Cypriot, we're told, by birth. Cyprus was known for excellence in Greek language skills. Interesting. He traveled with Paul. He knew the theology well. He was grounded in the scriptures, tight with the apostles. And in 200, Tertullian said it was Barnabas who wrote Hebrews. So that kind of pushes his name up to the top. One other thing about Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement, which is how the writer produces this sermon. It is a sermon of encouragement. Hebrews 13.22 I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. This word of encouragement. That's how he describes the whole sermon. For I have written it to you briefly. So, was it Barnabas? Was it Apollos? Or Luke? Or Paul? The truth is... I'm not really concerned about the writer. I am more interested in the author. Look at verse 1 again. God. Just stop right there. I mean, right there, we've got a sermon for the next several hours. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 begins, God. God. Man, that throws you all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1, 18. 
No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. God, after He spoke in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. God, the author. Jesus, the Word. Jesus is the final Word on God. Jesus is the explanation of God. No other explanation, by the way, makes any sense at all. You've heard of Occam's razor. It's that scientific uh, theory. In layman's terms, Occam's razor goes like this. The simplest explanation is usually the correct one. I live my life on that. The simplest explanation is usually the correct one. Or, when you hear hoofbeats, don't think zebra, think horse. Look for the simple answer, because more often than not, the simple answer is the right one. Jesus is the most simple, clear explanation of God. People try to come up with all kinds of bizarreties about what God is, or who God is, or how God is, and Jesus comes along and explains Him to us Perfectly, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. But what does this first verse tell us? He spoke. I like that. God spoke. God has spoken. I would say to you today, God speaks. This is not simply a past tense thing. He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. What does that tell us? In many portions and in many ways. It doesn't just mean various and sundry. It means that before Jesus came, get this, the full picture was impossible to see. He spoke in many portions. Many ways. Many parts, you might say. The word is polymeros. Polymeros means pieces or parts. We might say piecemeal. God spoke piecemeal. He gave a piece to this prophet. He gave some to that prophet. He gave a little bit more to the psalmist. He gave some over here. He gave some over there. Like a great jigsaw puzzle. They all have pieces, but until you put it all together, you can't see the full picture. You can get a sense an idea, a thought. This is, this is what's coming. But you don't fully comprehend. You don't fully understand. The fathers and the prophets all had pieces of the puzzle, but none saw the finished result. If you look ahead in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, the writer says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Ever work on a jigsaw puzzle, you get the whole thing done, and one piece is missing? Just drives you nuts! And it's usually the piece like of the face of the main character in the puzzle, you know. The one that you need more than any other, it's not like the sky that you can just kind of black out. No, it's, it's right, you need it. They didn't get it all. They got promise after promise after promise. Many tried to piece it together. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They were looking for that final piece. They're looking under the couch. They're looking behind the Christmas tree. They're looking on the table. They can't find it. Where's the final puzzle piece? 
Does it sound like I've had personal experience with this? It says they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He spoke long ago to the fathers and, and to the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But then Jesus came. And what was it that Jesus cried with His last breath? John 19.30, Tetelestai. die. It is finished. Finished. It's complete. The picture is right. The picture is together. All the divine portions and pieces fall into place with Jesus so that in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. It all comes together in Jesus. In these last days, God has spoken. Hebrews is Father speaking of the Son. It's God describing how Jesus is the embodiment of God. That's what's behind this whole thing. You hear this throughout. Guthrie said, if people cannot learn about God from the Son, no amount of prophetic voices or actions would convince them. Over in Matthew 21, Jesus told a parable. A parable of a father and his son. And in the parable, Jesus said, there was a landowner, Matthew 21, verse 33, who planted a vineyard. And he put a wall around it and he dug a wine press in it. He built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. But the harvest time approached, or when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? See, we know when the son came. We know when he arrived. We've chosen to celebrate that this very Christmas Eve. Hold that parable in your minds. I'll refer to it again in a moment. But though we know when the Son came, when was Hebrews written? Let me give you a little more information on on this book, a little more background on the sermon. Hebrews had to have been written early enough for Clement to quote it. So before the 90s in the first century. It had to be written at a time when the temple sacrifices were still in play because they're referred to in that way in the present tense as taking place currently. Had to happen, we think, before the fall of Jerusalem because the fall of Jerusalem is not mentioned at all and the temple is mentioned as standing and again, the sacrifices are rolling on. So not only just before 90 and Clement, but it had to be before 70. Now we're getting earlier and earlier with this book. Now, some scholars will say, in fact, one that I was reading this last week said, I would place the date of the book of Hebrews anywhere between 50 and 90. 
I need it to be more narrow than that. I would suspect that Hebrews was written somewhere around 67 to 68 A.D. Now we can't say this absolutely for certain. But what we can say for certain is if it was written around that time, and we know it's a first century book and we know it's early on, 67, 68, if that was when it was written, for 4,000 years prior to that, God had been speaking. He is the God who speaks again. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. God speaks directly. He's not silent. He speaks to us in human form. He speaks to us through the agency of angels. The Bible tells us He speaks out of the whirlwind, out of a bush that's burning and yet doesn't burn. He he speaks with a whisper. He speaks through visions. He even speaks through a fruit basket, Amos chapter 8 verse 1 tells us. He'll find many portions and many ways to speak, but the final word of God came again in the person of Jesus Christ. God spoke. Now I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, that He spoke Jesus into existence. I'm just saying that Jesus is the Word. He is the Word aptly spoken, you might say. The Word spoke here in verse 1 and 2. It's the word la leo. That's how the Greeks said we would speak. La leo. You know, la la la. We're speaking. La leo means to utter, to voice, or to, or to articulate sound. And what we know about Jesus when it says that He spoke long ago, but in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, that's profound because after Jesus, there is no additional text or tweet, or Instagram. There's no addendum. There's no postscript. That's not to say God ceased speaking. It's to say that Jesus is the final word. He is the word of God. There is no more description of or explanation of who God is. Someone comes along to you in this world, in this life, and tries to redefine God, it's heresy. Because Jesus is the final word. Jesus gives us the full explanation of every aspect of who God is. This is what makes Christmas so absolutely astounding. The mystery so marvelous is the babe in the manger was the final word of God. We were given a gift in Jesus to see and know and understand and realize God unlike anything that had ever been spoken in all of history. He is the final word. And Galatians 1.8, Paul says, Even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, I say to you again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, He is to be accursed. See Revelation chapter 22 verses 18 and 19 for more clarification on that. You don't add to, you don't take away from the final word of God. Jesus is it. So God doesn't speak anymore? Again, I didn't say that. I said Jesus is the final word of God. Which means that when you hear from God, 
It's Jesus speaking. It's His voice. He's the one who said in John 10.27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. He said, Revelation 3.22, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which indicates God still speaks through the Son. But hear this. God has spoken. That phrase, has spoken to us in His Son, is in the aorist tense. Right? Right? You all know exactly where we're going? Laleo, in the aorist tense. It's elalesin, if you saw it translated. And it's past tense. Past tense with ongoing effect. He has spoken to us in His Son. Past tense with ongoing effect. What do you mean? God has spoken in a definite point in the past... In the coming of Jesus to this world, but the impact of that speaking, of God having spoken, the impact of the final word in Jesus, man, it just ripples eternally. The shockwaves continue forever. In Christ, the word resounds and never ends. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. He's fulfilling exactly what Isaiah said. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. And Jesus is the Word of our God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Notice the Hebrew writer doesn't say God has spoken to us about Jesus. You see that? In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. The Hebrew or the Greek word therefore in is in. Literally, E-N in the Hebrew. Epsilon uh, nu, E-N. In. And translated, it means in. He has spoken to us in His Son. That's profound for us to understand. That Jesus isn't just a word, He is the Word. That He is the the spoken Word of God. Think of it this way. The Bible is full of personalities. We can read all these different characters and, and they're interesting and they're different and they're unique. Each and every one. Each character comes along and you get a new, distinct personality. And again, back in Hebrews chapter 11, you can read a bunch of those personalities that are listed in this great hall of faith You read about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. You read about Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Moses. Even Rahab the harlot is mentioned. And then he mentions Gideon, Barak, not Obama, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets. All of these have unique and distinct and different personalities. This great cloud of witnesses as the writer will describe them were each known in their day, and they're known in our day by their distinctiveness, their personality traits. And then after them, you got your Joseph and Mary, you got your disciples and your brothers of Jesus, you got your Herods, you got Pilate, and all of these known and defined by their personalities. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that by the personality of Christ, we know God. That Jesus' sensibility, 
What makes Jesus happy? What makes Jesus sad? What makes Jesus joyful? What makes Him angry? The personality of Jesus Christ as explained and expressed in the Gospels is the personality of God Himself. But guess what? That doesn't even go far enough. For what the writer is saying as he opens up this profound sermon, it doesn't go far enough just to say that Jesus has the personality of God or that He expresses God or that He's the final Word of God. It's more than that. Verse 2 is literally, if you look at it, and you might want to take a pen and line through a word. You don't have to if you don't want to. But the word is His in verse 2. In these last days has spoken to us in His Son, but His is not there. Neither is the, neither is any other definite article before you see the word Son. It is written like this. In huios. In these last days He has spoken to us in huios. In other words, in Son. He has spoken to us in Son. Now the translators add His because it sounds a little clumsy to say in these last days He has spoken to us in Son. We don't talk like that. So we've got to add a His there to make it flow a little better. But it is literally written, and by the way, remember, this is high Greek. This is a highly intellectual, intelligent sermon. Someone who writes a sermon like this doesn't drop words. And you won't see it happen in the book at all. He has spoken to us in Son. To add anything to that misses a huge truth. It's no scribal error or language flub. It's intentional. God has spoken to us in Son, which means Jesus is how God speaks, how God communicates. Meaning what? Meaning God didn't just send His Son like He sent the prophets as servants of the landowner back to the vineyard. No, He didn't just send His Son. God spoke in Son. When I speak, it's in English. That's my language. If I was from Belgium, I would speak in French or Danish, depending. If you were from Mexico, you might speak in Spanish. If you're from Canada, you might say, I'll leave the Canadians alone. (laughs) We all have a language that we speak. Jesus is the language of God. He speaks to us in Son. That's the language. Philip said to him, Show us the Father, Lord, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, John 14, 9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, if if Philip had said, Jesus, just let us hear the Father, then Jesus would have said, how can you say, let us hear the Father? If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. In fact, he goes on and says, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. He speaks in Son. Jesus is God in the flesh, and when He opens His mouth and speaks, it is God speaking. He speaks to us in Son. Jesus is the clearest, most literal, translatable language of God. God speaks in Son. And that's not just some kind of new-agey, millennial, pantheistic spiritualism. 
You know, oh yeah, well in fact I just, I just saw the other day, I don't know if you heard about this, but, but Jim Carrey is, is, is on YouTube, you can find this, speaking to a group of people at kind of a, uh, an organization in LA. Have you heard about this? And he's talking about Jesus on the cross. And it's fascinating. And in the first part of what Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, you know, the Grinch and Ace Ventura and all that. I think he has a fledgling faith. He's, he's coming to this faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's remarkable because he talks about the only thing that, that works, that works in our lives is forgiveness and grace by Jesus on the cross. And he describes Jesus on the cross and it's absolutely beautiful. And then about the latter part of his teaching, he starts to say that God is in every fiber of our being. And when you speak, God is speaking. And what you do, God is doing. And I kind of went, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, now you've just dove, you just dove into new ageism. You've just gone beyond. You know, God, my cells are not God. Trust me, or they would not be doing what they're doing. (laughs) And my voice is not the voice of God unless I happen to be reading Scripture. And even then, it's still not the voice of God. It's me saying what God has said. Jesus doesn't just say what God has said. Jesus doesn't just come along and, and, you know, he's a little weak. He really needs the Father to tell him what to say. So he okay, I'll say that. Yeah. With those words, all right. And then he speaks. No, he speaks. God is speaking because he is God. And the profoundness and depth of this, we need to not miss. Not just that the divine was in Jesus, like the divine in you and me and the trees and the seas. No, the revelation of Jesus Christ is the full articulation of God who speaks in Son because Jesus is God. Now, brace yourselves. Because the, the writer here fires off seven traits of God in Son in rapid succession. And you're saying, I hope you can do that too, Rick. Verse 2. In these last days He's spoken to us in Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. He is the radiance of His glory. He is the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Note these seven things. First of all, Jesus is the Inheritor. Whom He appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the Inheritor. Paul said in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. His inheritance. Our inheritance is only ours because of Him. We only receive it because it's His to give. He is the great inheritor of eternity and eternal life. It's His to gift. You cannot get it from anywhere else. Let me say that just one more time. You cannot get this inheritance from anywhere else. You can only get it from Jesus. It belongs to Him. Which is why He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. You cannot get the inheritance without the inheritor. And people are trying to do it all the time. People in our world think that all roads lead to heaven, all rivers lead to the sea. We're all going to eventually get there, and you may get there through Buddha, and you may get there through Muhammad, and you may get there through Krishna, and it doesn't matter. We're all just kind of rolling along, and we'll get there. And that's fine. There's one inheritor. Just one. There's one bridge from Fidalgo to Whidbey. Just one. 
Well, I'll take a boat. Yeah, and you'll sink. There is no other way. He is the inheritor. Note this, it continues and says, through whom also He made the world. He's the Creator. Who is? Jesus. John 1.3, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1.16, by Him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created, note this, through Him and for Him. He's the inheritor. He's the creator. He's also the radiator. The radiator. He is the radiance of His glory. That is huge. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses had the audacity to say to God, show me your glory. I can handle it. Show me your glory. And so God said, I'll let you see the backside of my glory trailing off. I'll show you my goodness, but you can't handle my glory. You see my glory? You're a dead man and I still have some things for you to do. (laughs) Show me your glory. Hey, in Jesus Christ, God has. We have seen His glory. John writes, John chapter 1, verse 14. Full of grace and truth. We have seen His glory. Listen, Jesus doesn't reflect the Father's glory. You and I do that. We are blessed to be reflectors of the glory of God. If we live our lives by the fruit of the Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, we reflect what is His glory. We're like mirrors of that glory. And occasionally, people will get a glimpse of something wonderful in our behavior, in how we treat each other, in how we love in this world. But that's different to reflect God's glory is not to be the radiator of that glory. Not one of us radiates or will ever radiate the glory of God. It's too big for us. We blow apart. Jesus radiates the Father's glory. And you can only literally radiate something that you yourself are the source of. Kind of like our sun in our solar system. Radiating light and heat. The sun is the source of that energy, that solar energy. But for all those who who would think, well, we'll just use solar power because it's renewable, guess what? It's not. It's fading away. It's dying out. It is burning out at a loss of 1.2 billion tons of mass per second. Now, if I lost 1.2 billion tons of mass, I would be gone. If I had lost just 172 pounds of mass, I'd be gone. I can't radiate that and get it back. This is what's so different between us and the divine radiance. The divine radiance, which completely blows away the radiance of our sun because our sun is slowly dying. Second law of thermodynamics, everything's dying. It's giving off this energy, but with all the energy the sun gives off, it has less energy to give off. Which, by the way, also completely denies the theory of evolution and the fact that the earth is billions of years old. The sun would be gone by now. The sun would already have burned itself out and we would be an ice-cold rock. The sun is dying, folks. It radiates, but with every radiation, loses energy. 
The Son of God radiates the glory of God without one iota of energy loss. He doesn't lose any. Revelation 21 verse 23 says the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. The lamp that radiates the glory. Jesus is the source of the very glory of God. He's the inheritor. He's the creator. He's the radiator of God's glory. And by the way, you don't have to put in water to keep Him cool. Look at verse 3. He's also, I love this, the exact representation of His nature. You might say number four, He's the character. Inheritor, creator, radiator, character. Exact representation. The word in the Greek, you're going to like this. It's easy to remember. Character. Character. That's how you would pronounce it in the Greek. And it, it literally means a representation. It's like, it's like a letter written on a page which when spoken is articulated. We articulate the character written in the Word. Jesus is the character. He is the character of the nature, the exact nature. That word nature is hypostasis, which means being. He is the character of the being of God. So in the same way a letter is written to visibly express an articulate sound, Christ is the exact character of God's being. Which is why I said earlier, He's the personality of God. What you see in Jesus, this is God. How He thinks, acts, moves, behaves, interacts with people, that's God. The perfect representation of the character, the nature of the Father. Colossians 1.15 says He is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the radiator, who is the image of God. The character. But verse 3 continues. And upholds all things by the word of His power. Now that ties back into radiator and I'll explain why. Jesus is not only the one who radiates the glory, He is the sustainer of this power. The sustainer. Colossians 1.18 tells us He is before all things, and I like this, in Him all things hold together. All things hold together in Him. You can even trace that to the nucleus of an atom. I've told you before, packed with positive protons and negative neutrons. And man, there is no reason they are all packed in together in the nucleus. It should, by nature, blow apart. It, It freaks scientists out. They came up with a great scientific phrase for for what holds all those protons and neutrons together. Strong nuclear glue. Brilliant. I would have named it like Crawfordianism or something. You know, I've used my name for it. But it holds together and it shouldn't. You know, that's the point. It shouldn't hold together. It should just be exploding. All of us made up of so many atoms, we should be exploding right and left. Merry Christmas! (laughs) There is no reason that you or I are held together. Who holds you together? Who keeps you together? Emotionally and spiritually and physically? 
when it's all coming apart, how in the world do you... I don't know how people in the world continue without understanding Jesus is the sustainer. And He He sustains all things by the word of His power. And this is so huge to me. This is the woman touching the hem of His robe. Remember the story? The woman comes up. He's in a crowd of people. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Doctors can do nothing. She has spent all of her money to try and get a cure. Nothing has worked. And she sees Jesus and thinks, if I can just touch the hem of His robe, I'll be healed. Such is her faith. And so she makes her way through the crowd. No one sees her. No one knows of her. She's an outcast. you know. And she gets just close enough to Jesus. Touch. And Jesus goes, hold it. Wait a minute. Somebody touch me. <laughs> and of course, Peter goes, Somebody test you, Lord? Do you see how many people? I mean, this is why we call it a crowd. <laughs> and they're all around you, and he says, Everyone's touching you, Master. They're crowding in, they're pressing in on you. Jesus says, Luke chapter 8, verse 46, Oh no, but someone did touch me, for I was aware that power has gone out from me. That just. Every time I think that makes me tremble. Can you even... I mean, power is... And she's immediately healed. And he says, daughter, go, your faith has made you well. She, you know, confesses. I don't want to get into the rest of the story, but, but check this out. Think about it. I never realized this before. Jesus, who is the radiator and the sustainer by the word of his power radiating the glory of God, the sustainer, by all this power. Did Jesus suddenly swoon when the power went out from Him? Wait, I felt power go out. (laughs) Peter, hang on. (laughs) Give me a minute. You know, this is not L from Stranger Things. If you've seen that show on Netflix, you know. She works her power and she's exhausted. Jesus is the sustainer. Jesus didn't have to lean on Peter. Jesus was not spent or weakened or drained. The power went out from Him because His power is constant. Listen, the one who holds you together, His power is constant. Man, I get weak. I vacillate. I get frustrated. I get spent. But the one who sustains me by the word of his power never weakens. Radiating the glory of God with the power of God, it is constant. In fact, the only time that he was ever powerless was when he chose to be. He chose to be a baby in a manger. He chose to be at the complete, under the complete power of mom and dad chose to grow up a kid, chose to walk around in human flesh, and yet still, still had the power of God in him, 100% God. And he chose not to use any of his power on the cross. Don't you know I could have called 12 legions of angels, he said. I mean, if Jesus had wanted to come down off the cross, which, which is what I would have done, if I had been Jesus... I would have waited until they nailed me up there, put the cross up, and then I just would have gone, all right, boom, baby! You know, light shooting out, people just rock for miles. Yeah! Thought you could mess with me. And once again, you say, so glad Rick's not the Savior. 
power of God. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He chose to be weak at Calvary. Why? Because number six, He's the purifier. The purifier. He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purifications, purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the purifier. Three times in this sermon, the writer refers to Jesus as our great high priest. For the Jewish people, the high, the high priest went alone into the Holy of Holies once a year, Yom Kippur, to make the blood offering, to sprinkle the blood in the holiest place, the rope wrapped around his ankle just in case he did it wrong so they could pull him out after he was dead. Once a year. This is what the high priest did. Why did God set it up that way? And why a sacrificial lamb? And why the whole picture of sacrifice and the priestly service? Because both the high priest and the lamb were pictures of Jesus. Oh, we know the lamb was, but think about this. So was the high priest. And the Hebrew writer pulls this out and shows it to us. Three times he calls Jesus our high priest. Because Jesus is the one who went alone to the cross. He offered Himself as the sacrifice, not just to atone, but to cleanse us, to purify us once and for all, from all sin, for all eternity. The purifier. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession zealous for good deeds. And then, and then, Jesus did something no functioning high priest ever did in the history of Israel. He took a seat. When He had made purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Which means, number seven, He's the ruler. The ruler. The ruler is the one who sits down at the right hand of the majesty. This is not a seat that is subservient to the throne. This is the throne. To sit at the right hand is to have all the authority, power, and glory of the one who sits on the throne. It's Jewish understanding, but it's clear to them to sit at the right hand of God is to be God. Psalm 110 verse 1 tells us the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. So powerful, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai. Both names of God. God said to God. David overheard a divine conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And where Jesus is not Adonai, where Jesus is not my Lord, God is neither recognized nor is He honored. All the religions and all the faith of the world out there believing in other beings but saying this is God. When you say Allah is my God, but you reject Jesus as God, you reject God as God as well. Only through the acceptance of Jesus as as Lord do you accept God as God. He is the ruler. 
He is the purifier. He is the sustainer. He is the character of God, the radiator of His glory, the creator of all things, and the inheritor. Jesus is the final Word of God. Let's stand up together. Verse 4. You see, honey, what he's doing is he gets us standing so we think we're done, and then he preaches for another 20 minutes. <laughs> Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. All of a sudden, after this magnificent opening salvo of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, of Jesus the final word, of Jesus clearly being God, suddenly we get this bizarre verse, having become as much better than the angels. Does that, does that mean that He wasn't as good as the angels at one time? He had to become better? How does that work? Angels we have heard on high? Angels from the realms of glory? Listen, no angelic voice raised in song or shout, no created being, no matter how amazing, no minister of flame or wind can compare with the sun, which is what he's getting at in verse 4. And on that stunning night in Bethlehem, hark, the herald angels sang. And it tells us in verse 6 that he brings the firstborn into the world and he says... Let all the angels of God worship Him. Only God may receive worship. And of the Son, God declared in the Hebrew Scriptures, let the angels of God worship Him. Which you know is exactly what happened at His birth, isn't it? And so in that moment, God affirmed the divine nature of Jesus, that He is God, through the worship of the angels. And I'm going to leave it there because we're going to come back tonight and we're going to talk about angels we have heard on high and finish out chapter 1. But let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You are the final Word. We join our voices with the angels to worship You. This world is in desperate straits, Lord. You know, you see. All that's going on here. We need you. We need your word. We need Jesus. Draw us near to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.